Hello, everybody. It's good to see you on this wonderful Sunday and to worship with you. Um, <clears throat> I just want to take the first few minutes to thank Pastor Kay, who led us in the opening uh, call to worship. And Pastor Esther is in the Philippines, so we didn't have another pastor, but she stepped up. She is our very precious junior high pastor. Uh, she is expecting, and she has all these things, but then even then she graciously offered her time to lead us in our worship. Can we just show a little appreciation for Pastor Kay? Thank you. Our Philippines team with Pastor Esther is coming back on Wednesday, so we do ask that you continue to pray um, until they do come back. And I hear they're having a great time, and God is using them mightily. So it's going to be exciting to hear how God exactly has used them, uh, but we'll hear when they get back. Um, every time there's communion, uh, we have it every two months. I wear this robe, and... Uh, I wear a stole. This is called a stole, right? And I just wanted to say that this stole is special because it was handcrafted in Israel. And um, I got it because it didn't fit any of the other pastors. They said, this stole is so long, it's dragging on the floor. Eugene, why don't you just take it? And I was like, all right. So I got a free stole. And I don't know about you, but that stuff makes me excited um, during Black Friday, pastors get excited for Black Friday too because robes and stoles go on sale on Black Friday once a year. And you might not think, you might not think it's a big deal, but these things go for hundreds of dollars. And we're like, we're doing the work for God and you're charging me. Oh. But then once a year, Black Friday, woo and um, God's is for free. I just had to share it. I thank the pastors in our church for being so gracious and generous. Also, for being not as tall, that's great for me. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's awesome. And so I wanted to wear that and um, uh, just share that with you. And that's one of the things that we do. When we have joy, we share that with one another. That's what this church community is about. But not just joy, but when we have sadness or when we have a deep need, that's also a time where we should share with one another. Church, it's this time. And so I want to announce it one more time. Underneath your seats, there are prayer cards. And this is so that not to say that, oh, you are so desperate and you're so below us. Let me pray over you. But this is a time we could pray for each other. You know, we, praying for, we pray for each other. And that's the way church is supposed to function. We celebrate with each other. We mourn with each other. And in need, we support one another and especially when it comes to prayer, we pray for one another. So I want to encourage you one more time. If there's any prayer request in your heart, and you could keep it anonymous if you want, or you can write your name, I'm going to be looking at it. And if you want to share it with our congregation so that we all pray, um, we're going to pray every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. We meet here, and a bunch of us gather to pray for our church. And so we also want to pray for you. If there's anything that you need prayer for, um, please do write it in those cards and you can give it to me. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or if you're new to the church. We all need prayer. If we say because I'm a pastor or a leader 
I'm too good for this, then we're all being hypocrites. We all are going through something. It's important that we share that with one another, not just the good things. Because if we just shared the good things with one another, then we'd just be a Facebook. But we're not. We're not Instagram. This is real world stuff. And we want to share the reality of what we are living in with each other and have and share that burden. I think that's what God has called us to do. And so please uh, fill out those prayer cards and submit them either to me or put it in the offering basket and eventually I will get them and then we will pray for you. Um, even if you don't, uh, you can just come up to me and tell me what you need prayer for and every service after Afterwards, I, I stand where I'm uh, sitting right now and I stay there for a few minutes just in case you need a prayer request and you want to drop by and say hello. I'll stand there and then I'll pray for you too. So please take that as an invitation um, so that we can pray for one another. We're going to continue on with Genesis and it's very exciting. This book is so amazing and then we're, we're here and then a lot of people will come up to this part and wonder why there is a little interruption between the Noah narrative. Because we did the gene genealogy last week. Noah should have easily been transitioned into, but instead there is this little break, this intermission before the storm. And it's important that we also take a break and we stop and see why this has been written in, and this is being shared with God's people. And so this is Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 through 8. And the three points that I do have is want, regret, and grace. Want, regret, and grace. And you see here the narrator is putting on this little prologue, and he's using all this language and we don't know exactly what's going on. What are the sons of God and the daughters of man? And, you know, the first thing I think some people ask when they read this passage is, who are the Nephilim? And what does that have to do with anything? Why is that just inserted here? And so these questions are out there. But even though there are questions, and I got to tell you, these questions to a certain degree, are still being debated among scholars. But I don't think not as much as you would think. But more than these things about who the sons of God is and daughters of man are um, and the Nephilim, we can't miss the point, right? What is the narrator re really saying? Anytime we see something where a detail isn't that descriptive and it's written there, it's because... We, don't, we shouldn't focus on it too much. There is a point that the narrator is trying to get to and that we have to understand. And so I do want to address it a little bit. Uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin also wrote about this and said the sons of God were probably the children of Seth. They're not angels, sons of God. Some people think they were angels. If you grew up in the church, you might have heard this and like, oh, these are angels. But angels don't procreate and reproduce in this manner so they couldn't have been angels and daughters of men were probably children of Cain and so when these two mingled apparently it made God mad I don't know you might be asking now if that's the case then why um, some people maintain that sons of God were like people in power 
Uh, they could have been kings, uh, like Pharaoh or like King David. Uh, but the point is this. Um, I, I do think that it's most likely, like Occam's razor, most likely it's the simplest of solutions. Most likely it means the children of Seth and children of Cain. But um, that's not the point. The point is this. Want. They did whatever they wanted. They no longer cared about keeping God and worship as a priority. The literal Hebrew words that are used here is saw, good, and took. They saw, it was good, and they took. This should be alarming because if you have been going through Genesis with us, then what other passage have we read when someone saw that it was good and took it? It was Adam and Eve. They saw it was good and took. And these exact words are used here. When the sons of God and the daughters of men, but the point is they saw and it was good and took. And why is this such a big deal? Because it is reminiscent of Adam and Eve and the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But here is the question that is so prevalent among our society and all of history. If it pleases me, if I think it's good, then what's so wrong about taking it? I read this. There's a famous author whom I won't name, but he wrote this. And because so many people are struggling with depression and um, lack of confidence, he wanted to encourage them, and this is what he wrote. You can do whatever you want for as long as you continue to believe that it's true and it will be. When you start resigning yourself to this is what I have to do, this is what I have to be, that's when you, you're done. So don't. It's pretty simple. Find out what matters to you, decide what you want, and ask for it. See, this is the drive of our society and what culture is teaching us today. If you see that something is good, then take it. And this is exactly what is happening in the beginning of chapter 6. You might read this and you'll be like, I don't understand between verse 1, 2, and then God is disappointed. God is upset in verse 3. Where is that correlation? But if you look at it carefully, it's all about seeing and then you look at it, and it's good, and then you just take it. We are a society, and we are living in a culture today that says if it looks good, you have every right to it and take it. And God is, God, is the God who's saying, actually, no. And there is that battle, that war raging in ourselves, too. If we are Christian. We are saying, wait, this is what, what I should do, but how come I want this so badly? I believe the Bible is teaching this. I've heard this, but how come my body is reacting this way? We call this in our world love, but the Bible does not call it love. The Bible calls it lust. If you see what's good and you take it, the Bible calls it lust. And because the lust is the drive of humanity, not spiritual discernment, that's displeasing to God. I'm going to get more into it, but love 
in, the, in our world currently is not defined, you don't define love by saying that is my spiritual discernment. Who defines love that way? You know, I love this person. That means, what am I going to say? I am spiritually discerned and I'm with you now to be with you. Who actually talks that way? Not, not many people talk that way. In fact, we say things like love at first sight. That's exactly what the Bible is talking about. You saw and it was good and you take it. That's exactly what love at first sight is getting at. So that is why when our primary motivator, and we call it love, but it's the same thing, saw, good, and take, and then we marry. You see this person, he's like, I'm in love. I love her. I love him. But instead of spiritual discernment, what your primary motivator was saw, good, and take, then the Bible is teaching us that's lust. That's not love. But we don't care, right? I don't care what, you, what the Bible has to say. I don't care what you have to say. I, I believe it's love. It is love. But and then we live out that life. And when we live out that life, what is the fruit of that life? Do we see marriages becoming more forged, more loving and caring? Or do we see more broken homes? And people thought back in the day, oh man, thank goodness I don't live back in that day because arranged marriage, I couldn't even think or possibly conceive doing things like that. And now we believe that marrying out of love is the highest, the highest priority that we have. And we say things to each other like, I don't know if I can love this person. I don't know if I love this person. Maybe I can try. And we say, the, we throw that word around. In fact, we sing songs like that, you know. Is it too late if I say sorry? Things like that, right? And so we, we want to throw out this word like love. Like it's not the word love, though. That is why we have such a hard time. But you see, there is something undergirding and holding things together. And it shows us in verse 3. It says, God is saying, I will not abide in man forever, and his day shall be 120 years. God is, it seems as though God is shortening man's days, right? Humanity's um, lifespan. But it's actually teaching us something. If you look around that, what is it really saying? It means God is actually the one sustaining and holding. God is actually the one that is holding the universe in his hand. The word sustain also means to contend. And when you look at it and you think about it, the universe is raging against humanity. When there is a storm, what human can stop it? But, it's, but God is showing us he's the one that is holding it together from breaking apart and the more you study science, the more that you know that even if it's one degree difference in our axis, in our axis, the earth would revolve differently and it would spin out of control. But even these little things being perfectly in line so that it can happen this way, God is showing us that he is sustaining you, not just universe, but your life. But what happens when we rage against 
God. When we do what we want, instead of love promoting our actions, instead of worship guiding our thoughts, it's lust. What happens when you see the Creator holding everything in place, but His creation continues to hit on Him and beat on Him, saying, I don't want you to hold things anymore. I don't need you. And we see here that God is saying something like regret, which is our second point. God here regrets? What's that even mean? I thought God was unchanging. I thought God was unstoppable, immutable. Can God change his mind? Can God do something and be like, mm, that was a mistake? Can God make mistakes? Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. In the same way, James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. The meaning of Numbers 23.19 is clear. God is not man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? No, God does not change his mind. And we have verses that assert that God is unchanging and unchangeable. But also in Jonah chapter 3.10, it says, Lord grieved. Um, but in Jonah chapter 3.10, it says he had compassion when they turned from their evil ways. Uh, similarly, Exodus 32.14, it says the Lord relented and did not bring disaster that he had threatened. And in some uh, translations, as repenting, Look, all these things point to something, and I'm going to get to it. It's pointing to number one, God has emotion. God has emotion. God has compassion. God is saddened. God grieves. God is not so different that he is this uh, mechanical, someone so far away that doesn't affect us or we can't affect him, but God does have emotion. God does grieve when we sin. When we turn from his ways and say we want to do our own thing, I don't care what you have for me. I just want to lust. What is so wrong with that God? And when we reject him, it shows us that God grieves. God has emotion and he has compassion and he is capable of expressing them in his perfection. But here is what it really is pointing to. Because God is a God of justice, he carries out this justice, but here we see continually, not just in this passage, but in the previous passages and the passages after, God wants to relent. God wants to show compassion. God wants to give grace. God prefers mercy. And so here we see that every time that the biblical narrative is talking about relenting or changing his mind and doing all these things, what it is really showing us is that God wants to forgive. God wants humanity to come back to him. He loves his creation. And so how does that make sense? 
How do we make sense of God being like, I want you back with me, but if you don't, I'm going to completely punish you and kill you? That seems like a totally far off and very foreign concept to many people. If God really loves you, how can he destroy you? How can he go out of his way to completely annihilate you? Doesn't that seem a little foreign? Doesn't that seem a little off? How can we correlate those two? When we continue to read the Bible, and this is explicitly shown here, but we'll get to that too. We continue to read the Bible. God is a God who is a God of justice. When there is something wrong, when someone goes out of their way to destroy, to promote violence, to promote hate, God isn't a God who says, all right, let's have you at it. Do what you want. He doesn't do that. And in fact, when we lust, when we go out of the ways of God, instead of loving, we lust. We can call lust whatever we want, by the way. But lust exactly is what it is written here. You saw a good take. No spiritual discernment. Whatever you want, you do. That's what lust is. And when we get out of this way, instead of spiritually discerning, asking God for wisdom, asking God to guide your steps, we just go with that feeling, that gut. Then what is happening is here. Here we see that humanity turns more into a violent rebellion against God. Saying, I don't want you, so I want to do what I want. And the more that we do this, the more we see the depravity set in. And it's not just you that you affect when you lust. It's not just you that you affect when you sin. We can cry out all we want, God, leave me alone, leave me alone. I want to do whatever I want. But when I do that, what happens? I affect you. I affect you. With my lust, I affect you. That's why we say to the young men, don't look at pornography. It's going to affect not only you, but the way you look at other people. The way that you look at your wife will be different. Don't just look at something and you see, wow, this is great. Let me just get it without even thinking twice about it. But we see that we weigh here, what is my primary motivation? You know, what is in my heart? What is erupting out of my heart that I want it so badly? Is it spiritual discernment or is it lust? And if it is lust, then we backtrack. And God, I want you to take that away from me because when I really want to love somebody, lust is actually killing my relationship with this person. It's affecting my relationship with so many other people. And then we can, we can continue to convince ourselves, yes, 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 I just, it doesn't matter. You know what? In the end, I don't care about what anybody thinks. I just want to do what I want. And you can go on this rampage. If God is a God of justice, he will stop that. He will punish it. Because God is a God who sustains and maintains order and who loves. Love is order. Love is when I lift the other person up. Lust is when I push them down to do whatever I want. And so... Um, we had this, uh, we we're having new members class, and um, 
I, we have some great questions that come up, and I'm really excited for today's new members. Um, the question was, you know, why, basically, why, why does God, people, God send people to hell be so loving? I was like, that's such a great question. That's such a great question. But every time we look in the Bible and we see an image of hell, especially Jesus, who talks about hell more than anybody else, you never see people in hell climbing to get out, saying, oh, my goodness, I did wrong. I want to get out of this place. In fact, every single time they actually stay in there and they want to bring other people into hell. They want to bring not only other people into hell, they blame other people. They blame God. And you see this happening all throughout even the narrative until we read chapter 6. People are blaming God. It's because of you I'm here. It's because of you I'm in this situation. And instead of repenting, saying, God, I want to turn my ways, my ways are wrong. My ways are corrupt. I can only lust when I see something that's desirable. Instead of spiritual discernment, all I can do is lust after. It fills my mind. When I close my eyes, those images continue to pop in my head. I can't, I can't help myself. I'm in a position of brokenness. I'm weak, and I turn to you, God. Instead of that, what do we say? We say, this is your fault. You made technology happen. Why don't you stop this from happening to me? Why don't you stop it? It's your fault. And then we blame God. In Romans chapter 1, it says, hell is a place where God finally says, you keep on trying to stop me from sustaining the universe. You keep on wanting to stop me from telling you and teaching you about what love is. And hell is a place where God finally says, fine, then live without me. And that is the most scariest thing about hell where God says, fine, do what you want. Discipline isn't scary, my friends. If you're a teacher and you discipline a child, and if you're a good teacher, I should say, um, and you discipline a child, if you're a parent, a good parent, and you want to discipline your child, what is it out of? It's out of love that you discipline your child. You tell your child no, because why? It's dangerous for that child and for other people around the child. That's why you discipline. Discipline is not the scariest thing. The scariest thing is when the child finally says, you know what, I don't need you, I don't want you, and then leaves. How is that child going to survive? But that's what humanity is doing. We want to just take what we see as good whenever we want. In Jeremiah chapter 3, we see the heart of God here. It says, how gladly would I treat you like my children and give you a pleasant land, the most beautiful inheritance of any nation. I thought you would call me father and not turn away from following me. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. When we leave God, when we leave what he has for us, we see all these things become broken and settings come out of place. When settings come out of place, there's pain. There's destruction. There's violence. There's immobility. When I was a kid, um, I loved sports. In fact, I, I forgot who I was talking with, and we were sharing about how uh, kids these days might be a little different. Not all of, all of them, but growing up. Now we have Pokemon Go. 
And um, that is how a lot of children get exercise. Um, that's how they finally have a walk with their parents. The parents are excited. I can finally have a walk with my children. So, but they're playing Pokemon Go. <laughs> but at least they have some kind of uh, some time together. When I was a kid, um, I remember all I wanted to do was play sports. We played all kinds of sports. And we would play right after school until the sun set. And we couldn't see anything anymore. And we'd go back home and, you know, finish up homework, clean up, things like that. Um, yeah, that's what we would do. I had a frail body when I was a kid, and I would always get my shoulder dislocated. You know, I'd run into somebody, and boom, my shoulder would be dislocated, and it'd be excruciatingly painful, and I didn't know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. I don't know how to set it back in place. I don't know anything, so it's just hanging by my side. So I had to go to the doctor, and the doctor's like, well, it's going to set back eventually, so why don't you just do this? And for like a day or two, I just walk around like this until it's set back. My uncle came up to me, he's like, your shoulder always gets dislocated. Why don't I just put it back in? Because he was like this martial artist guy. And he's like, it's going to be a little painful, but I could just yank it in. And I was like, no, please don't touch me, uncle. And I'm glad to this day that I didn't say yes. Uh, but, you know, we all know what it means to have something set out of place. When something is set out of place, when something is not right, it's hard to function. You can't function. You've got to set it back into place. Setting back into place is turning back to God. That essentially is what repentance is. When we honestly take a good look at our lives, and God is in, not in your life, your setting is out of place. What are you living for? My brother Jacob, who went to um, China, said the same thing. You know, we learn all these things. They want us to be the best that we can be. Live true to yourself. And they would admit to him, I still don't know my purpose in life. Why am I doing all these things? I don't see why I'm doing this. The setting is out of place without God. And then even if we want to function normally, it's painful. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to put it back in place because I don't, I don't know my anatomy that well to just yank my arm in. But God is showing us here, if you come back to me. See, this is God who loves his children. He wants us to come back to him. He wants to show us grace. And how does he do that? In all throughout this Bible, even if this is the first six chapters, has God been an idle bystander or spectator? The answer is no. God has always been involved, waiting, pursuing, calling people back to him by whatever means necessary. God is an active part of creation. Not only does he sustain and maintain, but he is in it. In verse 8, in this final uh, passage, in the final part of the passage, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word is chen. You need a little phlegm to say the word chen, but in the Hebrew language, there's some guttural sounds, right? And we don't have it in many languages today. But chen, it means favor, but it's also the word for grace. Noah received grace. See, God is a God who wants to give us grace. 
And even now, if you turn to him, he is willing to give you grace. C.S. Lewis, who, was, who originally thought there was no God, eventually figured out maybe there is a God. Probably there is a God. But there's no way to know for sure, right? There's no way to know for sure there's a God. How can you know God personally? Because in the same way Hamlet couldn't know Shakespeare, we can't know God. God who created everything is outside of time, space, and matter. So just as Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, how can Hamlet know who Shakespeare is? In the same way, how can we ever know who God is? Hamlet could never climb out of the play to meet the author. But you know what's possible? What's possible is that Shakespeare could write himself into the play and make sure Hamlet met him. In this story, God isn't just a bystander. But he is someone who writes himself into the story. He incarnates not just as someone that you see here speaking, but he wrote himself into human existence as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God writing himself into the play. And he's showing us that he is real, that he wants us to come back to him. But you see, we as humanity, even though God would write himself into the play, as amazing as that is, we still raged and we said, we want to do what we want, God. We want to lust after the things that we want to lust. And what we did was we beat God. We beat him so that he, we thought he could let go if we beat him. We tortured him. And we nailed him upon that cross. And we crucified him. And we killed him. God who created all of creation made himself vulnerable by coming to us as a human and we responded with the same lust and rage like before. But you see, that death could not hold him down. God who is a God of grace wanted to extend grace even further than we deserved or we could ever possibly imagine. And he rose again from the dead. Even though we would nail his hands on the cross, he would rise from the dead and extend his nail-pierced hands to us and say, if you believe me, I will still save you. I am still willing to reach out and save you. That is the kind of God that we know and that we serve. God didn't just create the world and leave us be. But He came to us in our most desperate, in our time of darkest need. And He came to us offering us His hand to save us. God wrote Himself into the play of human existence. And now when He looks at you, when you receive Jesus Christ into your life, he also says this with your name on it. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I want you to replace that with your name. When you receive Jesus Christ into your life, no matter how dark things can get, no matter how pitiful your life situation may seem, 
Know that Jesus came and he conquered it. And he extends his hand to you. And when you take that hand, that's your story now. You received favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's take this time to pray. If you don't know God, and you're in this place, but the Spirit was moving, and you know you need God, this is the time to open your heart to Him. He is a God who wants to relent, who wants to pour out His grace to you, who wants to put order into what was once chaos, who wants to give love where we only knew lust. Open your heart to Him. Offer your life to Him. And some of us here, we have been far from God. We thought we knew God, but all of our decisions, when we see this, it was made out of lust. It wasn't spiritual discernment. Then it is a time to turn back and turn back to Him turn back to God it is not too late God has set up this specific time and place for you to come back to him and receive his grace let's take this time to pray